You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 29th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Protests continue in China, but why haven't they started in Russia? President Emmanuel Macron of France visits Washington seeking economic assistance for Europe and military hardware for Ukraine, and Italy's new prime minister seeks a revival of cash money. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Stephen DL will discuss all the day's big stories, plus we'll hear from the classicist Daisy Dunn about her splendid anthology of Greek and Roman storytelling. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at UCL, and by Stephen Diel, the writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst. Hello to you both. Good evening. Um, We will indulge in an amount of World Cup-related light introductory banter because while the world waits for the big game of the tournament, which is, of course, Australia versus Denmark tomorrow, (laughs) uh, both of your nominal teams are involved very, very shortly. Kick-off about an hour away. Um, Julie, first of all, are you excited for the great Satan versus the Axis of Evil? Yeah, well, this is like the, I guess, 20, 24 years on from like the mother of all football matches, as they called it back in 1998 with like Iran US and, and Iran um, Iran uh, beat the US then. So I, I think this match is just fascinating. I mean, there's so much politics swirling around it. So as someone who loves both sports and politics, I just think it's really interesting. I mean, just the extent to which the US and Iran will show um, sympathy with protesters in Iran the extent to which that'll play out on the pitch is uh, has all been really interesting to see how it plays out. But um, so, you see, I still remember 1998, and I'm still angry about it because I distinctly recall getting like a whole bunch of people and quite a lot to drink in in anticipation of an absolute thoroughgoing, full-blooded punch-up. Um, and obviously, both teams had obviously been told to be on their best behaviour, and it was just 90 minutes of no after you old boy. <laughs> terrible, terrible disappointment. Can we expect or hope for? Or do you think, Stephen, an amount of that sort of spice when England take on Wales later? It's not like there's not a certain amount of history there either. Oh, there's history and there's spice. There will undoubtedly be spice. Um, uh, I actually, given that um, I've rather lost um, a lot of faith in England as a country and therefore as a football team, I would rather like to see the Welsh win, apart from the fact that my two elder children were both born in Wales, so they're rooting for Wales. Um, And I just think it would stir things up very nicely. Of course, they really, to guarantee going through they would have to win by four goals and even in the wildest of dreams that seems unlikely um but uh, you know a one nil win by wales a draw in the other game and then um they could actually go through well one or two funnier things have happened uh, in this tournament we will start tonight's show proper with china where protests have been taking place in several cities against ongoing covid19 restrictions which are coming up for the third anniversary of their imposition for obvious reasons public demonstrations of this or in 
indeed any sort, are unusual in China, and the outside world getting to hear of them more unusual still. Reports suggest that police have acted to forestall further such disorder, especially in Beijing and Shanghai. Well, I'm joined now by Patricia Thornton, Associate Professor in the Politics of China at the University of Oxford. Um, Patricia, it's always a strange moment when something like this begins acquiring momentum, trying to to discern whether this is going to be a thing or not. Do you get the sense that there is any uh, any momentum building here? Are these protests going to be ongoing? I, I just, it's difficult to say how long they will continue because authorities have stepped up their responses in a variety of different ways. But you're right, it was entirely unexpected the way in which this one took off. It was triggered by a fire uh, that took place in a high-rise building in the capital of Xinjiang. And uh, really surprisingly, well, at least 10 people died in the fire, but really surprisingly, the information about the fire was brought to the city of Nanjing by a student who was at a telecommunications university, and he was upset about censorship. So it was really the actions of that one student and his persistence that then triggered off what has now become protests in 18 different Chinese cities. Well, you only need a memory stretching as far back as the Arab Spring to know that from relatively little things, big things can grow. But how rattled are authorities, especially the Chinese Communist Party, likely to be by these protests, particularly the ones where people have been out in public in the street uh, chanting for President Xi Jinping to go? Yes, that I, I, that that is what is most has been most shocking about these protests. We have seen people in the past reacting um, against the uh, really stringent lockdown measures and uh, various other incursions on their freedom in the last three years, but we have not yet really seen. Uh, the kinds of protests that we're now seeing where people are calling for Xi Jinping himself to step down and for the end of the Chinese Communist Party rule. So that that in and of itself, I think, would be cause for serious concern in Beijing. So they're looking at this very, very closely. Would they be worried even if they are probably certainly relative to China's vast population, quite small in scale? If you've got 1.4 billion people not protesting, is a few thousand people protesting actually that big a deal? Well, the problem here is really the ways in which they're protesting, because as we know, the Internet in China is very heavily censored and tightly controlled by authorities, both local and regional authorities. But really interestingly, what some of the protesters have done is that they are filming themselves in real time and using Telegram which is um, a, a encrypted channel in order to broadcast from one city to the other. So what you're really seeing is large groups of protesters, including students, but other people as well, taking to the streets. They're singing the Internationale, and then they're cheering and calling out to each other using social media live to other groups in, in, as I said, up to 18 different cities. So that is what is really disturbing the authorities in Beijing because they feel that they've got the internet more or less under control. But in fact, 
what the last several days have shown us is that there are ways around that. And are we getting any sense that authorities are coming up with any response beyond cracking down? Is there any sign of them winding in some of these restrictions that they have imposed or even any talk of coming coming in a bit from this total zero COVID stance that they adopted nearly three years ago uh, and have clung to long past the point at which the rest of the world has moved on? Yeah, so right now they're sending mixed messages. So we've seen an article in the uh, People's Daily, the official um, uh, organ of the party state, saying that everyone needs to recommit themselves to zero COVID and what they call dynamic clearing. But on the other hand, we're also seeing uh, somewhat of uh, what you might call trial balloons being floated across other media platforms suggesting that local authorities have been imposing a one-size-fits-all policy in various regions where it's not been appropriate. There, I saw another editorial complaining that PCR testing companies have been uh, it, it, guilty of mispractice and there's going to be a crackdown on them. So w- what we're seeing right now is sort of, uh, on the one hand, uh, a, the central voice of authority reasserting commitment to zero COVID, but on the sidelines, the search for scapegoats, uh, you know, probably at the middle or regional levels. Patricia Thornton, thank you very much for joining us. Let's bring our panel back in and broaden this story out somewhat, because the willingness of some Chinese, and indeed a great many Iranians, to protest against their repressive governments has attracted widespread and unflattering comparisons with the apparent relative unwillingness of Russians to protest against their repressive government. Um, Stephen, you know well Russia. You know well Russia. You know Russia well. Um, let's see if I can now say words in the right order. Um, You know Russia well. Is that entirely fair on Russians? And if it is, is there a reason for it or is there something we're missing? I don't think it's entirely fair. I think there have been more protests in Russia than we've realised. They've done that they don't settle things like putting little stickers in shops and things that's saying about the war. Um, The problem with Russia, and I think um, will probably be the case in China, but we'll come back to that. Uh, But the problem with Russia is that the security forces, Rosgvardia, the National Guard, which is like an internal Mm. army, um, uh, the uh, Oman, the riot police, the police themselves, they are all so brutal these days that Russians know if they go on the streets, they're going to get their heads bashed in. that's that's quite an incentive not to go on the streets and to have these perhaps more subtle ways of, of protesting. We've also seen, of course, probably a million Russians fled, uh, young men. Well, when that, that prompts the follow-up question is why are they not taking to the streets in the rather more safe countries they're in now? Because we have certainly seen Iranians demonstrating in London, Berlin and elsewhere. Again, there have been some demonstrations, but yes, that's... Um, there is, I mean, okay, I, I can see what you're, what you're aiming at. And uh, having said, you know, that there are Russians who protested, there is also a great sense amongst Russians of shrugging their shoulders and, well, it's always been like this. Um, if you wanted to be quite cruel, you could even go so far as to say Russia was still a, a slave nation or perhaps more, appro- more appropriately, a nation of serfs. 
who uh, only in 1861 was served and abolished, but even then under the Soviet system, they were very much downtrodden. Uh, and they are now by, by the present regime. The present regime is as brutal as I think Russia has, has seen it since Stalin's time. Um, they haven't had quite the number of murders that Stalin did. Um, but other than that, the number of people who've been imprisoned, the number of the, the way in which the, the security forces deal with them, um, it, it's, it, it's very intimidating. Um, and I can't see that protests on the streets in Russia will bring an end to the war as things stand at the moment. I mean, Julie, is there an associated misjudgment that this judgment of Russians is being made by the citizens of countries where outdoor street protest is a thing that people do fairly frequently, whereas Russians not so much, all for the reasons that Stephen uh, outlines there. And I, I just wonder whether part of that misjudgment we make is that when we think of Russia, we still think of possibly the great exception which proves the rule, i.e. the Russian Revolution. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we, we see things through the lens that we're in, of course, and even the example that um, you know, Stephen was just talking about with people being outside of Russia. Um, you know, I just know even for some of my students, people are very concerned about their family members who mm. are back in Russia. And so there's always this sense of if I do something, like, will someone that I you know care about be hurt also? And I, I think that sense of um, right ha- living in that kind of of state, also a state where, um, as we know, you know, propaganda and media information is obviously very different than, <coughs> excuse me, somewhere like the UK or the US. Um, just the the realm that you're working in is just very different. So I I think uh, it's it's helpful to keep that in mind. I think when we're being judgmental, perhaps, of why people are or aren't rising up. Is it arguable, perhaps, Stephen, that from the point of view of President Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime, it was actually pretty smart to let everybody go who really wanted to go, all those middle-class students with overseas connections and a certain amount of money, frankly, always the people who are likeliest to make trouble? In terms of keeping the regime as Putin wants it, yes. In terms of the development of the country, it's a, it's a disaster. Um, because that, that doesn't seem to be high on President <laughs> Putin's list of concerns. No, sad, sadly not. But um, it has been a real brain drain. You know, that's a, a slogan from the past, but that, that mm. has been the case. So um, I even heard one uh, Russian who lives in this country now uh, say, well, the one good good thing about it is that um, the cyber attacks on the West have have rather slackened off because the guys <laughs> who are doing it have now all left. Um, so it, it, it's, um, yeah, Putin is, is storing up problems for Russia's future, but I don't think Putin cares because Putin has his own agenda for seeing himself as creating a, not, not even the Soviet Union, but a, a, a Russian empire. Um, and that's what that's what this is largely about. And he's misguided and deluded. Um, but at the moment, he still has that nuclear option in the background, which is the one that keeps people in the West frightened. What I end up always end up wondering, Julie, uh, and it's the reason I, I tend to be something of a protest sceptic, is whether the media overvalues them. Because they're always a spectacle, because you, you, you have angry people, you have chanting, you have flags, you have banners, you occasionally get the odd thing thrown at the police, which is all terrifically exciting. But you don't actually need to attract that bigger crowd to get the media to pay attention to you. And as I was saying uh, to our first guest, if you have... like. A few thousand people protesting in China is is nobody at all and and you regularly see the media in the west sort of clearing headlines for 
demonstrations containing fewer people than you would find at a lower league football match the same afternoon. Yeah, that's so interesting because I think you're right. And I think certain contexts obviously get a lot more attention, like places Mm. where we don't expect to see any kind of protests like Mm. Iran, like China. Um, I know from my own work in the Middle East, kind of following protests in Israel-Palestine, it's very hard to get media coverage of a protest in Palestine these days. Or as Stephen said, there's probably small demonstrations and protests with Russians over in Europe right now that we don't see or hear about that much because they're in places you expect them. So I think there's um, kind of a tipping point when they are taking place in quote unquote like safe places or what have you. Um, there's a sense that there almost needs to be violence or something spectacular to happen for the protest. Or, or to they be, have to be really, really big. Or gigantic, exactly. Mm. And I think that creates um, a difficult thing for protesters because you can mobilize people, get them on the street, but it, it is actually hard to get that coverage. The, apparently, the, um, the 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 tipping point is five percent of the population, if, uh, and, if, and certainly the Russian Revolution of nineteen seventeen, mm. the Bolshevik Revolution, is a very good example of that. That is a crucial. If you've got five percent of the population going out on the streets and and uh, demonstrating, that is often enough to to turn a country. I also just want to add a p- point, if I may, about China, um, uh, because I, I'm I, I'm not asking anyone's age in the studio, but I'm certainly well enough, um, old, old enough and was working um, for the BBC at the time to remember 1989 and the Tiananmen Square protests. Mm. And that's that's one thing when I've seen these Chinese protests coming up now, that has really come back to me. And I thought, I remember the feeling then over two or three weeks and Gorbachev visited China at the time and they, they, they allowed the protest to take place and there was the goddess of democracy statue on Tiananmen Square. And then the Chinese authorities decided, right, we've had enough. And there was a bloodbath. Mm. Um, and so that, maybe I'm going too far back, but I think with the current Chinese regime, I would not be surprised to see a serious violence from the authorities to, to stop these protests. I, you know, I haven't seen these protests and thought, oh, China is falling apart. On the contrary, um, I think people will be slapped back into place. Well, let's move along. And this week in Washington, D.C., President Joe Biden will lay on the first full-blown state visit of his term. The guest of honour will be France's President Emmanuel Macron. The general vibe between the two men will likely be one of mutual relief. Macron's that he isn't meeting Donald Trump, Biden's that he isn't meeting Marine Le Pen. But there will also be an amount of tension. Macron will be attempting to avert a US versus Europe trade war and hoping he had better luck than he did trying to prevent a Russia versus Europe actual war. Um, Julie, first of all, uh, I know this is a great big sprawling technical and complicated story, but is there a simple way to boil down what the thing actually is here? Why are the US and the EU on the verge of a trade war? Yeah, so back in August, Biden passed what was called um, aspirationally the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which was pretty much um, where they put in a lot of their climate policies and some other things as Mm -hmm. well. And part of that was giving some incentives for businesses to uh, develop green uh, technology and for customers to buy them. So that was seen as a really positive thing. The one thing in it was that they had to be produced in North America, so really trying to support U.S. companies. And that's where all this is um, is is causing problems now with not only France, but Germany and other European but, producers. I mean, that seems like a reasonable-ish sort of thing for a U.S. government to do. It does, and it um, it's something that I would say much of the world has been, you know, hoping the U.S. would finally pass some kind of climate legislation, give some kind of incentives for green tech. But at the same time, what that means is companies, consumers are going to be looking to those North American companies more than just relying on German, French, European companies as they have in the past, and that's worrying Europe. Um, Stephen, Macron's wider point, uh, as I have followed it, is that an 
further economic crunch of any sort to Europe is not going to be of assistance as winter drags on with respect to keeping everybody arrayed behind Ukraine. Does Macron have a point there? Possibly, but I think I'm more optimistic on the Ukraine question uh, than I was perhaps a couple of months ago, because even as the the cost of living crisis in Europe has got worse and that people are paying more for energy and so on, um, there does still seem to be uh, a united front. And I think things like Ukrainian gains on the battlefield in Mm. September, um, this appalling policy of Russia's now to, um, like a spiteful child with very nasty weapons, to say, well, if we can't win on the battlefield, we'll we'll take out as much power generation and water generation as we can. Um, I I think that on a purely human aspect, people are saying, you know, this this is terrible. And hopefully people have realized that, you know, this is not just something happening far away on the edge of Europe. Um, this is a threat to to the whole of Europe. Um, and uh, and I think that I, I would perhaps think Macron would push that a bit in, in Washington and say, well, you know, you know we, we, we might not be able to support Ukraine as much. Um, but that is something on which they are singing from the same hymn sheet uh, about supporting for Ukraine. So uh, I, I would, I don't think he's going to really going to go ter- terribly seriously on that issue. I think Europe is still behind Ukraine. Uh, nevertheless, Julie, are we seeing here a reiteration of a, a dynamic we've seen before at various points in the transatlantic alliance in that Europe thinks the US is not taking a threat in Europe sufficiently seriously, and the US thinks that Europe is insufficiently grateful for what it is doing. Yeah, there's definitely some of that dynamic going on. But I would agree with Stephen. I mean, on, on more than anything else, I would say France, the US, and you know, Europe more broadly are, are seeing pretty eye-to-eye on Ukraine. I don't see things like, you know, the potential subsidy, uh, you know, trade war, that kind of stuff, changing that commitment uh, regarding Ukraine. They have been very committed to that. You know, I think with the new Congress, we we'll might see some pushes for more um, kind of oversight of US aid and more kind of pushing for European um, countries to to bulk up their military support. But I think that's probably as far as the difference is going to go. Um, Biden, Macron, the leaders, I think, are very committed on Ukraine and are, are pretty eye to eye on this. I think also that um, Macron, must there must be a certain embarrassment for him because even on the very eve of the war you know he went to moscow again and he's been he's had these phone calls with putin and i think you know he has now had to see that putin is not a normal politician putin mm. does not think of things the way people in the west do um and uh, you know his his policy um has looked rather foolish so i think now he has you know he's, he's made up ground and i think he has to he can't backtrack on that now uh, we'll talk more about ukraine shortly but just before we do i I wanted to put a question to each of you about transatlantic relationships. And, Julie, I'll ask you first about the general state of the US-French one, because there was quite the fracas quite recently over the whole AUKUS thing, as it is now known, as an upshot of which my own country, uh, Australia, cancelled some French submarines in order to buy American ones. Uh, There was some terrifically French indignation. They recalled their ambassador from Washington, D.C., indeed. Do you get the impression that 
that's all sort of blown over at this point? I think it has, and largely because of what we were just talking about, Ukraine. I Mm. think that evened things out and forced it to even out a lot faster than it probably would have been before. I mean, that was was a blow to France. I think the U.S. vastly underestimated how much that was going to hurt an ally in that moment. But again, the reality and the pragmatism of needing to work together on Ukraine probably pushed that aside faster than it would have otherwise. Uh, And Stephen, will the spectacle of the heads of state of these two great republics uh, celebrating what I'm going to go ahead and call their special relationship. Um, Is that going to cause a few rankles here in the United Kingdom? Oh, undoubtedly for the Little Englanders. Because the the French, I think, really do enjoy reminding Britain who was on whose side circa the American Revolutionary War. And that 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 park out the front of the White House isn't named after an Englishman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, uh, France is seen as the USA's longest standing ally. Um, uh, And yes, we were were burning the White House in... in, um, As recently as 1812. 1812, Mm. Uh, um, So there's another shock coming for, for some of the little Englanders in, in Britain um, who think that you know, the, the special relationship between Britain and, uh, and America is so strong. Um, they seem to think that um, America will fall over itself to do a trade deal with Britain outside of the EU. Uh, they're not going to. No. Um, that that's a complete nonsense that some of them cling to. I mean, the, the 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 lies of Brexit are all coming home to roost for anyone who wants to, who who has eyes to see them. Some of them still pretend, but um, th- that is the the in that sense, France is in a much better position than than Britain now to have a genuine special relationship with the USA. Well, let's look in further detail at Ukraine. Yesterday, several NATO foreign ministers took the train trip to Kiev to demonstrate their ongoing solidarity. Today, they're meeting their colleagues in neighbouring. Romania. And not for the first time, it's noticeable that a closer a country is to Russia, the keener it is to tool Ukraine up still further. Lithuania's Foreign Minister Gabrielius Landsbergis has suggested that it is well past time that NATO overcame its squeamishness about sending Ukraine modern battle tanks by way of replacement for Ukraine's ageing current Soviet or Russian-built fleet. On The Globalist this morning, Emma Nelson spoke to Open Democracy's International Security Advisor Paul Rogers. Here is some of what Paul had to say. I think this is, it's, a, it's very difficult to sort of say this in public, but essentially the United States is constraining itself. I mean, the reality is that uh, if the politics was different, the United States could have provided this key ATACMS missile at virtually any time. It's a standard missile in the United States. It's the long-range version of HIMARS, which has been very successful. Then the Americans aren't doing this. Um, the harsh reality is the Americans, to some extent, are able to control the expansion of the war. Now, I don't like saying that, particularly on air, but there's a lot of information which suggests this. And this is why I think, in a sense, one of the things that's most important is Ukraine has been very uh, rightly very successful in, in presenting what is really happening on the ground. It's going down, curiously, with European audiences more in some ways. And you see it with the Kiev Investment Forum, which met yesterday in Brussels, which has some very positive things to say about what could be done. But the political reality is the pace of the war is being um, developed in part from Washington. As was just said, you know, when Ukraine does get the the new weapons, then it uses them very effectively. The concern on the nuclear side is simply not that there'll be an escalation of anything else, but threats would be made, and that produces an unstable situation. We've been here before in the Cold War, and this is one of the things which I think is holding the Americans back. Uh, But the reality at the moment is that 
the Americans are now looking at getting this new system in. If they do that and it comes in the next three or four months, it will make a difference. But the problem is that how do you actually bring the war to a complete end? In the final analysis, that has to be done by negotiations, however much we may not like that prospect. That was Paul Rogers speaking to Monocle24 earlier. Um, Julie, to the question of the tanks, um, Gabrielius Landsbergis, Lithuania's foreign minister, further elaborated that he had been reliably informed that Ukraine now had troops that can operate uh, European or American modern battle tanks. So why not send them? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're hearing from NATO today that there may be some further commitments of the kind of military aid that Ukraine has been seeking. That might include some of the tanks. But I will say there has been, um, I think, more reservation from the U.S. side in terms of um, in terms of the missiles and the rockets and the longevity more than the tanks. I think that's been more where the issue is that we that we heard kind of referred to. And that and that issue is more that idea of um giving Ukraine capabilities that would allow for cross-border attacks. And that's what the U.S. has been trying to refrain from. The tanks, I think, has been more of an issue of training and capabilities. So we might see a shift there. Um, With the long-range missiles, Stephen, that that concern that Ukraine might start launching attacks inside Russia, is that at this point a distinction without a difference, given that Russia claims that those four Ukrainian oblasts and Crimea are all Russian territory anyway? I I mean, that is an argument that will be repeated frequently, but um, I don't think it should be used by the West as not to give them um, the equipment. Um, Russians are claiming that the Ukrainian are hitting their targets in Russia already in their own propaganda. Um, I mean, but again, Ukraine would be perfectly entitled to do that. Well, I agree. I agree, yes. Um, But I think their their main priority is to to drive the Russians out. And so uh, I think they can give assurances that they would use this weaponry to to do just that, to drive the Russians out of their own territory, because no one believes that those four areas are a part of anywhere but Ukraine. the tanks could be well used, particularly come January when, mm. when the real frost are on the ground. Um, Ukrainians have been trained by by Britain, by Canada, by the US um, in, in using Western equipment. Uh, and I think that if they're given su- uh, su- sufficient numbers of tanks, they could really have a, a difference on the ground. Um, and the missiles, I, 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 I'm all in favour. I mean, let's, you know, let's look at it rationally, go back to the 24th of February. This is a totally unprovoked attack on mm-hmm. Ukraine by Russia. Um, Russia deserves all it gets in return, and Ukraine has the right to drive these troops out of their country and any equipment they can use to do that. I think they, they should be sent. The other thing is, of course, Russia is having a problem with producing equipment now because mm. it, it can't produce any more smart weapons because they don't have uh, the, the components that ironically were coming from the West uh, before sanctions. Um, so even though we may not be producing in the West as quickly as um, some in the defence industry might want to, but we are still producing the weapons, and uh, th- that is the obvious place for them to go now. And Because, uh, as I mentioned before, this is not just a little war on the edge of Europe. You know, this is, I would suggest, potentially, we are already in a situation where there is a third world war going on. It's as serious as that. Um, Julie, just before we move on, um, I want to ask about the symbolism of where this conference has been held. And before I do that, I want to plug a couple of recent episodes of Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk. The most recent one uh, is an extended conversation with the former Supreme Allied Commander Europe for NATO, General Philip Breedlove, and his former Deputy Supreme Allied Commander, uh, General Sir Richard Sheriff. And there was another one a few weeks back. They're all on the website, which was a long interview with NATO's current Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg. Um, 
But to the symbolism of that, this meeting is not being held in the same city in Romania, but actually the same room where in 2008 NATO declared that one day Ukraine and Georgia would join. Uh, They've also invited along the foreign ministers of Moldova, Georgia and Bosnia. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we can can all see the the relative symbolism of where this this meeting has taken place today. And it's interesting. It was actually George W. Bush who kind of pushed NATO initially to uh, start thinking about and vocally, um, uh, you know, talking about admitting Ukraine in the long run. And you know, we've seen that really be quite forcefully adopted, at least vocally, by many members of NATO, though realistically that would still be a while. At the same time, of course, we see the alliance um, expanding it already has and most likely courting new members. So I think uh, Romania seems to be establishing itself as the, the place for those kinds of, uh, of momentum to build anyway. Well, let's move along. And the migration from cash to electronic payment, massively accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic, has become a favourite theme of people who spent too much of lockdown doing their own research and becoming persuaded of some ghastly socialist plot to suborn those free people of Earth who have not yet been turned into mutant slaves by vaccines. Possibly attuned to the concerns of her base, new Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney has taken a stand on behalf of cash, planning new measures which will will include allowing shopkeepers to refuse cards on payments of up to 60 euros. Um, Stephen, what is she doing and why is she doing it? I think she's putting her head in the sand and living way back in the middle of the 20th century. Um, I personally think that it's one of the advantages of the, uh, the pandemic was the fact that now we don't have to carry lots of loose change in our pockets, which might make holes in the pocket, uh, and, and can just whip out that bit of plastic and, uh, and pay with it, as long as you're doing it sensibly. The, the danger of it is, of course, that people think, oh, you know, it's just there and they just tap and... Um, they they may actually end up spending more than they than they can actually afford to. But um, I, for one, think that this is a, a a great move forward. I remember in 1983, yes, on my very first visit to the US, being shocked in in a hotel bar, I was meeting someone for before a conference, and um, uh, he ordered a couple of drinks. And when he came, and he got out his credit card and paid, and I thought. Paid with a credit card. Um, now it's the most natural thing to do everywhere. Well, indeed so. But is there still nevertheless an argument, Julie, that a completely cashless economy would not be an entirely good idea? Uh, we, I mean, I think that I mean, I think Maloney is, is is tapping into something that I think a lot of rational people could agree with. I mean, a lot of people have concerns about their all their purchases being tracked, about their identity being tracked, all these kinds I mean, of things. I mean, their so, purchases and their identity are being tracked, right? <laughs> and so I think I think that sense of like having an option to not pay with plastic is probably appealing to a lot of not only her constituents but just like people in general. But I, I would say, as someone who like loves playing with cards, I, I hope what she doesn't do is turn it back for buskers because I think this is like the best thing to hit. Like, the busker like community is like the ability to have those little stands that you can just tap your card when you're in the tube. See, I, I was rather hoping that one of the positive benefits <laughs> of the end of cash might also mean the end of buskers. <laughs> but that, that that is clearly just me. It is. You, you can't say I don't have change anymore. It's like, if you like it, you got to tap. So I hope she doesn't take that away. Um, there is a serious political question here as well, Stephen, about how this is going to fly with the EU, because part of Italy's agreement with the EU on receiving pandep- pandemic recovery funds was to impose sanctions on retailers who did not take credit cards, because the other thing that goes on with cash, um, and I don't, I mean, 
okay, it's Italy, and not, I'm not saying that there is nowhere in the world where there is an issue with black marketing, refusing to declare yourself to the appropriate authorities, etc., etc., etc. But it's not unheard of in Italy, especially. Um, and this is this is not going to play with the EU, is it? Because a, a cash economy inevitably encourages people not to report their earnings. It does. And uh, maybe she wants to go back to lira, actually, and then have, you know, how many thousand and millions of lira, you know, you then find that you only had um, about five shillings in your pocket or whatever. Um, I, I, I am old enough to remember <laughs> buying a leather jacket in Luca and spending the rest of the trip wondering, have I just paid 200 quid for this jacket, in which case, fine, or have I, in fact, paid £2,000 for it, in which case... Not as good. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, I think this is just, a, you know, it's a bit of political flag flying to say, look, you know, that to, to the people I'm I'm caring about you, you know, those of you who, who don't like this plastic menace. Um, but I really don't think it's going to work. This is, you know, this is, it's really, it's what's called progress, I'm afraid. Um, well, on that theme of progress, Julie, and just finally, are we basically learning again uh, that when people have to make a decision between their privacy or convenience, they will basically just take convenience? Oh, I would say almost definitely. I mean, I've, I've seen that even for, I think, for myself. I think my, my students have seen a lot of things that I think we were up in arms about like five or ten years ago. We've just kind of have gone with. But, um, but yeah, there's just like practicalities to it. And I think, uh, you know, as Stephen said, with the, you know, just with the EU more broadly, I think there's going to be some pressure on Maloney to, um, to make sure there's still this option. And just, just finally, do, do either of you still actually carry cash at all or have you gone full-blown royal family at this point? Well, <laughs> I, as an American, we tip like all the time, mm -hmm. so I always keep fivers with me because you like to sometimes have to tip. So that's my cash. I do have at the moment a twenty-pound note in my wallet, just because there is something. Maybe it's, that's an age thing. I just sort of think, uh, you know, my mother always said to me, "Never go out without any money at all." And so, even though I have a couple of cards, um, I, I do actually see. I, I too like to keep yeah. a few quid in banknotes <laughs> just in case civilization collapses while I'm while <laughs> well, I'm here at work. You never know, is my point. Um, Julie Norman and Stephen DL, thank you both for joining us. And finally, on today's show, the ripping yarns of Greece and Rome have been told and retold, interpreted and reinterpreted. They are at once the foundation of our storytelling canon, yet weirdly elusive. Anyone searching for a single volume to stuff into someone's stocking shortly will do little better than Of Gods and Men, 100 stories from ancient Greece and Rome. It is an anthology chosen by the author and classicist Daisy Dunn and includes translations of works by familiar names, Homer, Plato, Plutarch, Euripides, all the greats, by, in some instances, perhaps surprising translators, including Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lawrence of Arabia, and Queen Elizabeth I. I spoke to Daisy Dunn earlier. I began by asking whether she'd imposed any criteria on her selections, or whether, in the end, it just came down to author's whim. It's partly author's whim, but it's partly every story I chose had to hold its own as a story. And this is a really difficult thing because there's no such thing as a short story. That's not a genre that the Greeks and Romans recognised. Uh, the novel itself was a quite a late development. So a great proportion of their literature is actually written in dialogue form. So you have things like plays, you have sort of call and response type dialogues, philosophical treatises, things like this. So I had to make sure that my extracts from some of these longer works held their own 
as stories. And it had to be exciting. We should make clear that one of the interesting aspects of the book is that the translations themselves are not all by translators of the ancient world. There's some relatively uh, modern ones. And I, and I was wondering how much you found the translations varying and, and to what extent that they reflected the translator imposing their own personality, whether deliberately or otherwise, on the original text? I think I'm, I'm quite a, an open-minded classicist. So I came into this thinking, I don't want to just be running translations here, which are to the letter accurate. You know, I don't want people who have just looked at the Latin and Greek and tried to render it as accurately as they possibly could. I'm sort of interested in the fact that people like Ted Hughes came to Obvious Mesmorphosis and really quite obviously departed from that text. He'd fill in blanks in spaces where there isn't actual text. That's probably the loosest translation I have in the entire collection. There are other people like Samuel Butler, uh, the great writer, he translated the Odyssey and he stuck quite closely to the text. But at the same time, he would see words in Greek, such as corn eating, the corn eating humans. And I think, well, corn eating is kind of redundant. I'll leave that out. So People sort of varied, I think, in their approach to the text, but that's what makes it interesting. I mean, I came to this very much with the view that I'd grown up reading these great collections of children's books. I think lots of us come across the myths for the first time when we're little. We have these retellings of, of myths. But when I got older, I realised that a lot of those retellings bear very, very little relation to the actual classical texts. So I wanted to go back to those texts, go back to people who've actually engaged directly with the Latin and Greek and try to make them their own. And I'm all in favour of a loose translation. I like the fact that people keep the stories alive by adapting them to their own times. And I think that's why partly the classical literature really has stood the test of time. There, there was a couple of the other translators that you picked on that I wanted to ask about, people who are not necessarily known primarily as translators of classical texts and, and also who are significant figures in their own right, uh, significant historical figures. And I'm thinking here especially of uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Colonel T.E. Lawrence and Elizabeth I. Did you get any sense that they were imposing their own rather epic autobiographies upon the epic literature? they were translating? I think some of the time, I, I have to say, I had no idea that Lawrence of Arabia had translated the Odyssey until I started doing this. And I read his version. He's predictably very, very good on all these episodes of Daring Do and these adventures, as you'd think he would be. But I decided to sit down and look at some of the, the moments where Odysseus is in quite a sort of sensitive scene with his wife, Penelope. And I was surprised at how sensitively Lawrence of Arabia, as we call him, actually approached that. So I think there's probably elements of his own life, certainly, in, in Odysseus' adventures. You can see that he would have been really attracted to those when he was translating. But I think it's a, a real mixture. You see a different side of the person often in their approach to the classical text. And with Elizabeth I, again, she was a great classicist in her own right. She could translate texts with great skill. And she chose a late classical text, The Consolation of Boethius, which is, it was actually written in prison by someone. And he imagined having this meeting with lady philosophy. And people have looked at that and have seen reflections of Elizabeth I's own anxiety at that time during her rule, following the conversion of the King of France to Catholicism. So it's partly in her choice 
of that particular text rather than in the actual way that she translated it. But, you know, that said, you see this great sensitivity, this great sort of sense of empathy with this figure who was awaiting his fate. It's it's a question we've kind of addressed when we spoke before for the the Foreign Desk's historical episode uh, on the fall of Troy, but how reliable a picture of the realities and the history of the ancient world do these stories give us? Can we be certain, for example, that Herodotus was not telling stretches about the Persian Wars? I think Herodotus absolutely was telling lots of <laughs> people, people have sort of uh, made a mockery of the fact that he was sort of called the father of history because there are so many very obvious flights of fancy in his history of the Greco-Persian Wars. But that's also what makes him so readable. I mean, no one wants to sit there and read a really, really dull chronicle of those wars which have happened in the 5th century BC. We want to know what people were believing at that time. And I think sometimes when you do get the gods of breaking into the scene, that is sometimes a reflection of what people believe was actually happening, people believing that fate was playing a part in the turn of events. You know, they were, they're different religious beliefs from us, obviously, today. So it's very much capturing the spirit of of the time rather than just sticking to the letter of, of what was happening on the ground. I won't conclude by asking you if you think the classics should still be more widely taught, because I I think we can all take a wild guess as to what your answer is likely to be. But assuming that it is, in fact, yes, what would be your reason for that? What, What could people still be getting from the classics now? I think it's pure enjoyment. That's why I do it. It's sitting down and feeling as though you can really connect with a mind that existed 2,000 years before your own. I mean, I find that very, very cool. You can sit there and sort of think about what someone else was thinking, understand what they were feeling, really put yourself in their shoes and see the world through their eyes. And when so much of what they knew has been obliterated, otherwise when you can't see the buildings that they were living in, you can't see the cities, to actually have some of the literature and the words that they wrote It just feels incredible. Daisy Dunn speaking to me earlier of Gods and Men, 100 Stories from Ancient Greece and Rome, is out now. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Julie Norman and Stephen Diel. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>